Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 127th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Got all your Christmas shopping done? Got all my Christmas shopping done. So actually, this is the first time in a couple of years that I'm not uh, last minute Larry here uh, with the Christmas shopping. So I feel good about that. Yeah. So to Rachel and I, it feels good. Yeah, it does. It feels good. It does. So um, we will uh, get started here and go through the performance for the month and the year of the major market indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the close on December 9th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 2.2% for the month and up 24.2% for the year. The Dow up 3.7% for the month and 16.8% for the year. The NASDAQ up 3.5% for the month and up 22.5% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 1.1% for December and up 12.5% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 2.5% for the month and up 6.2% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.06%, two-year Treasury yielding 0.72%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.51%. Matt, not a whole lot from the past week in terms of big news headlines or current events, but it has been a, uh, we have experienced, I guess I'll put it this way, uh, more volatility than we've seen throughout the rest of the year up to this point. Um, yeah, we've seen one of the worst, is, one of the worst down days and one of the best up days. Right. Recently. With, <laughs> for right. the year. For the right. year. Yeah. The, the volatility has been elevated compared to the previous, um, call it 11 months so far this year. Sure. And feels a little different because it hasn't happened in a long time. But yeah, like you said, in both both directions, right? And to the downside and to the upside, we'd had, you know, plus or minus one or 2% days a couple times over the past week. So yeah, and in my opinion, it's the market pricing in the, um, the new variant of COVID. Uh, if it's going to disrupt uh, the economy, the consumer business supply chains, etc. Um, and obviously, the market shot first. And, and then as the, the news continues to come in, where it's contagious, but not as deadly as previous variants, Money's come right back into the market, and I think it's a great, uh, I think it's a great illustration as to why an individual needs to stick with their plan and not try mm-hmm. to trade on day-to-day headlines. Because guess what, the narrative changes, and it changes really quick. Yeah, it does, and you know, it's been a extraordinary year, I think, in my opinion, in terms of volatility and how much we've lacked it. But it is, you know, important <laughs> to remind people that this stuff is normal and it's going to happen from time to time, and typically happens excuse me, happens several times throughout the year. Uh, This year just tends to be, or excuse me, I guess it it hasn't happened as much this year as it does normally. But, you know, as a reminder, this stuff happens from time to time and it's completely normal. This is very normal. Yes. Very, very normal listeners. Very normal. It would be concerning if we didn't have these instances where volatility was higher, right? To put it very simply, if we didn't have bouts of volatility like this, the returns that you 
have enjoyed in the market would go down drastically. Yeah. Because it's the volatility that creates opportunity and really creates the ability to get these good long-term rates of return. That's the byproduct of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just quite simply, it's, you know, the higher the risk, the higher the reward, right? It's like mm-hmm. with anything else in life, it's the same thing in the stock market. Yep. You squeeze all the all the risk out of it. And it's not nice and easy peasy. You're not going to get these types of returns anymore. Right. Exactly. Yep. Um, all right. So I'll kick it off with tweets, articles and research from the week, Matt. The first thing that I have uh, was a chart that was tweeted by uh, George Marutis on December 2nd. And uh, for listeners watching, or excuse me, viewers watching on YouTube, Jenna's going to put this up uh, as we speak about this chart. But it was a chart from First Trust, and it's titled The History of U.S. Bear and Bull Markets. Uh, and this goes all the way back to 1942. I love this chart. So this daily chart uh, shows daily historical performance of the S&P 500 index through the U.S. bull and bear markets since 1942. We believe looking at the history of the market's expansions and recessions helps to gain a fresh perspective on the benefits of investing for the long term. The average bull market period lasted almost four and a half years with an average cumulative total return of about 154%. Okay. Mm -hmm. The average bear market period lasted 11.3 months with an average cumulative loss of 32.1%. So again, Matt, I think this chart really hits home that even though most people spend the majority of their time preparing for the worst, we don't spend enough time preparing for the good times of which the majority of the time we are in good times. And it shows you on this chart, you know, these pullbacks or these recessions or these bear markets look minuscule compared to the returns during the bull market. And those averages pointed out for you, right? 154% over a four-year period, higher returns, longer time period compared to the bear markets, which is shorter time period, shorter amount or smaller amount of loss, right? And obviously during a recession, it feels horrible. I'm not trying to downplay that, right? But just zoning out and looking at this over, you know, since 1942, right? You can see that, you know, most of the time we're in good times. And yet the thing that still grabs the news headlines is bear markets and recessions and pullback and volatility. So, you know, again, for new people starting out, I think this is a really good chart just to put things in perspective that, yes, we are going to have times where the market pulls back. But again, history uh, doesn't always repeat itself, but it will rhyme. I'm not going to guarantee that the market is always going to come back. But if you look back through history, you know, we deal with these short recessions and we get paid off in the long term. Absolutely. And, and, the, and the thing that always concerns me is, Anytime we have any sort of correction in the market, the bears come out of the woodwork. They show up on all the financial news stations. And what do they usually end up saying, Mark? This is it. This is the beginning of the next downturn. Uh, had a major brokerage firm uh, pounding the table on that massive sell-off um, at the end of November. 20% correction between now and the end of the year. 20%. Mm-hmm. And I want to get that guy back on the TV right now. Because it's that type of prolific pound-the-table advice that gets people derailed off their plan. Mm-hmm. 
because people spend so much time looking over their shoulder. Your car should be on cruise control going 65 down the highway. Right. You shouldn't be looking over your shoulder constantly. Right. And it's just a concern of mine. And corrections are normal. And if if someone can't sleep because they're concerned about a correction, they need to reevaluate the amount of risk, their time horizon that taking they're taking. Too much risk. Some, some, there's a disconnection, mm-hmm. right? So ultimately, I love that you're throwing this out there because people do spend, in my opinion, too much time planning. Now, eventually, the market's going to have a correction of 20%. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'll use the term, I guarantee it'll happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know when, but I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, people spend way too much time on that. And it's those corrections that really create great opportunities. I mean, talking about you know, the, the practice that you and I manage, you know, you're a chief investment officer. You bought a specific stock back after the COVID sell-off. I won't name names. And it's been our best performer in the entire portfolio since you made that purchase. Mm-hmm. And you probably wouldn't have bought it unless it went on sale and you found that opportunity. And it's, it's things like that that really make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I think people need to change their lens and their focus from corrections or a really bad thing to longer term, they're not bad for me. If I could be opportunistic or stick with my game plan, put some extra dry powder to work, that's the lens you really need to be thinking about. But the problem is the financial media preys off the two guiding emotions in investing, fear and greed. Mm-hmm. And there's only two. And they're, they're playing those strings. And when you're in that environment where the sell-off, the recession you're saying, Mark, it's so scary during mm-hmm. those times. Yeah. Go back to COVID. It felt like it wasn't going to end. Right. It did. And that and those type of events lead to, you know, like a, a paralysis by analysis. Like it you're does. trying to analyze every little thing. And go, going back to your point during COVID, it was like, OK, is this going to end in six months? Is it going to take two years? Is it going to take a decade to get over? And then what? ripple effect is this going to have across the economy it's like once you're analyzing everything you're not going to be able to make a decision so the better choice would just be to sit on your hands right and usually sitting on your hands delineates Pays the best dividends. outcome yeah. <laughs> yeah because usually you know after the the roughly two month really bad sell-off in february and march of 2020 and I will spike the football on this. I think we are one of the few people out there that were, in essence, calling for a V-shaped recovery in the markets. And ultimately, the, the, the fear aspect was so dramatic during that time period, Mark, that I fear there's people that sold and didn't get back into the market yet. Mm-hmm. And that's a concern of mine, because how are you going to keep up with inflation? How are you going to take income and live off it, off of it with the current interest rates of cash or cash alternatives you're not going to right and i think it all starts with you know what is the goal what is the objectives of this money i'm just previewing something i'm going to get into a little later so i'll take it thunder let's get back to what you were talking Um, about so uh, a good good chart by george there again if people uh, are not watching they can see that chart on our show notes either uh, on twitter at jessup wealth or facebook or linkedin Jessup Wealth Management. Well, just the last thing I'll say is in future corrections, I'm going to remember and I'm going to say, you remember when we talked about in episode 127, you had the bull bear chart. Mm -hmm. This is normal. These times do last. You know, the average is about 11 months, like you Mm -hmm. were mentioning. That's part 
of the byproduct of the great long-term return that equity investors have earned. Correct. You got to remember that, listeners. Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, next thing I had was, can young people still count on Social Security? A blog post by uh, Ben Carlson, who we talk about a lot on this podcast. All right. I have not read this yet. We'll see what he says. So this is right. This is all, one of the big political topics always. Right. Oh, is yeah. You know, you got, you know, especially people talking to my generation, you guys are not going to have anything when you guys retire in the form of Social Security because there's going to be nothing left. And Ben takes a more practical approach by looking at the data rather than just fear-mongering. So I really enjoyed this article. All right, I'm in. Um, so he starts off by saying, in 2020, 65 million people received Social Security payments and upwards of 175 million people paid payroll taxes into this program. And I just want to make a brief comment, Matt, for people who don't know, Social Security is financed through payroll taxes, right? Mm -hmm. So employ employers and employees both pay 6.2% of pay that go towards funding Social Security, right? Mm -hmm. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimates nearly one third of all elderly Americans rely exclusively on Social Security to fund their retirement. That's scary. Very scary. 10 million Americans have been lifted out of poverty simply by receiving their Social Security check. Roughly half of all senior citizens in this country get at least 50% of their retirement income from Social Security. Now, that's a little more realistic. I mean, you know, not all of it. Right. So, but these are still huge numbers, Matt, right? I mean, so I think that this drives home the fact that you know, whether people like it or not, or want to hear this or not, I think we all need to be more responsible with our own savings and investments over the next couple of decades than we have in the past, just so people aren't so reliant on the system. Absolutely. Um, And he says to say this is an important program would be an understatement. Social Security is the largest line item in the U.S. government's budget, making up roughly one quarter of annual spending by the federal government. This year's report claims that there will no longer be enough money coming in to fully cover the payouts by 2033. One of the biggest reasons for this is that there were close to a million more people who retired last year due to the pandemic. This means more people taking Social Security payments early in many instances. Taken at face value, this sounds like awful news. I'm not worried, though, and here's a few reasons why. There is still money available. From 1974 to 2008, there were between 3.2 to 3.4 workers paying taxes into the system for every one retiree receiving Social Security benefits. Correct. By the mid two. Or 2030s, when the bulk of the baby boomer generation will be retired, that number will dwindle to more like 2.3 workers for every retired person. I've seen some of those stats. Mm-hmm. When you consider the fact that people are living longer than ever before, this will obviously put more of a strain on the system. Why most pensions are underfunded. Correct. But that doesn't mean there will be no money left. In fact, the SSA projects by 2033 that taxes will still cover more than three quarters of the payout. That could mean one of two things. Number one, the government will have to cut Social Security benefits. So everyone gets 75% of what they were told. Correct. Or number two, the government will have to find that money elsewhere, right? 
when you think Texas. of the, when you think of the millions of people that are impacted in a positive way by this program, could you really see a politician? any politician <laughs> suggesting to cut Social Security penalties? There's no way uh, that would any be congressman a or congresswoman would death do that. sentence. Yes, that would, would be a death sentence. Yeah, especially everyone. Everyone loves their congresswoman or congressman. They always do. Everyone usually doesn't like their senators because they're so far disconnected. Mm -hmm. But I just don't see a local representative like that voting against that. Right. So whether it's right or wrong, you're for government, you're against government, not trying to get political here. But I find it very, very unlikely that any politician in their right mind would ever suggest cutting Social Security benefits. I have one thing, an idea, but I want to let you finish your thoughts on this before. No, 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 that was it. Right. I just wanted to make that. So comment. the I agree with everything you said. So the one thing I will throw out there is I think to a certain extent there will be an income level mm -hmm. where it will begin to give you a discount on a on a needs analysis. And let me give you an example. Let's say we get to the year 2035 today and in today's dollars. If you're um, um, single filing on a tax return, if your income's over a hundred grand, they're going to give you seventy-five percent of your benefit. Right. Or if you're married filing jointly and it's above two hundred, and, and and you're taking Social Security, you're above two hundred, they're going to give you that that one fourth haircut and give you seventy-five percent. Mm -hmm. That I could see. Okay. Yeah. yeah for Some sure. sort of needs-based calculation where you get a little bit of a haircut if your income's at a at a higher threshold. But for anyone in a normal income range, and I, I know I'm being very loose with that term, right. but you see what I'm trying to say, yeah. I, I, I think it will be there. Yeah, I think that that's definitely something down the pike that could be coming. Um, and it's up, you know, it's really anyone's guess as to, you know, what is the government going to define as that so, level that phase level, out, right? The phase out that that that'll be that'll that'll be the political that that's when you get Republican and Democrat you know, had debates. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's yeah. when it starts to come in. So yeah, another possible, so three potential outcomes, yeah. right? That that's you just know, my opinion. They're going to cut benefits. Government's going to have to find money elsewhere to up, fund it or, or needs they based. have a needs based calculation where you get a percentage. Right. Right. Um, so Ben goes on to say, if 2020 has taught us anything about the U.S. government, it's that the federal budget is nothing like a household budget. The government can literally print money out of thin air Man, with a push nice? of a button. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> it would be to have a printer in your house. My kids think that's the case for me. <laughs> money trees they in the backyard. They plant must some think, money trees. They think I just leave the house and I come home and all of a sudden, you know, stuff stuff happens. Yeah. You know, that's right. Um, And he says... <laughs> Am I making you laugh? No, over it's this? it's true. It's true, right? It's like uh, you know, it's anything else in life. It's like it'd be really nice to be able to go plant a money tree in the backyard, but it's just not how it works. <laughs> I laughed because a year ago I showed up at my in-laws' house and my mother-in-law had this little tree in her kitchen. I don't know, mother-in-law listens to the podcast. And the title of the tree type, it was called a money tree. And I looked at her and I'm like, Can I get like a thousand get a of these of in these? my backyard? Yeah. I That'd guess they nice. nicknamed a little like tree you can little plant you have in your house they the call money it the tree? money tree mm. guess what no benjamins yeah actually grow on it buddy ah that stinks i know that stinks know. um and he says to be more specific they create treasure a treasury bond to create this money right so the government is not constrained by some line in the sand when it comes to that and obviously we know that's true because of the debt ceiling that always gets raised and 
blown through with a torpedo, it seems like. Um, Inflation is always a worry when it comes to government spending, but the government in 2033 can simply take that money from another budget line item or borrow more money to make the Social Security system whole. There's no reason for government officials to cut back on Social Security if they don't want to. A couple other short fixes he thinks uh, can happen. Your Social Security payout is calculated based on how much money you earn over the course of your career and at the age when you begin taking benefits. And again, we talked about this, I believe, next week we discussed how that's calculated, right? So if you want to check that out, go to episode number 126. I believe it was the financial planning topic of the week that we discussed Social Security and how that's all calculated. So, um So he says that knowing that people are living longer, the government could always increase the retirement age for younger people. Officials could also take the cap off the amount of income that is eligible for Social Security taxes. Oh, that would just be huge. Right. So currently the cap is 6.2% of pay up to almost $143,000 of taxable income right now. At least for 2021, that's what it is. They could always remove that and make it 6.2% across the board. Or up to $500,000 or a million or... And raise a lot more money. Correct. Um, Additionally, they could change the cost of living adjustment for those receiving benefits in the future. There are a number of levers the government could pull that would alleviate some of the strain Social Security causes on the federal budget. It all comes down to the potential or excuse me, to the political uh, person who's willing to make those changes. If you're a young person, you may assume you'll never see a dime of Social Security money. I don't believe that for a second. The authors of the most recent report even took their calculations out to the year 2095. Okay. At that point, they estimate payroll taxes should still be able to cover 74% of payouts to Social Security recipients. So you're still at about three-fourths, and so they got to figure out how they're going to gap the other fourth. I mean, there's a lot of levers they could pull. They could pull levers such as... A higher income earners don't get in colas, inflation adjustments over mm-hmm. time. That could solve part of the problem. Yep. Needs-based calculation, raise taxes, have higher income earners continue to pay above that threshold. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of levers these politicians will pull, but I agree with the assessment that you made as well as Ben. Politicians are in the business of getting reelected. And that would be a very unpopular decision for their constituents. Yeah, it would be. It would be. So, again, I'm not concerned, just as Ben pointed out, that there's not going to be anything left by the time younger people retire. But I do think it is a best practice to save and invest like there is no Social Security benefit, right? Because that's just going to put you in a better position. Yeah, you want to be Mm self-sufficient because you don't know. And that's something you can control because you have time on your side. Right. As right. you would say, as, as, as the Mark McEvely would always say, focus on what you can control. That's right. That's one thing you can control. Um, so what I alluded to earlier, Matt, brings up my next point. It's a article um, posted. Who wrote this? This was by um, posted by Meg on Flow Financial Planning titled, When You Invest, Start With The Right Questions. So what Meg starts off by saying is the most important question in investing is a question that you should regularly come back to every time you make an investment choice. What is this money for? Ooh. Once you answer this question, what is this money for? Then most of the important investing questions are practically answered for you. An easy example. This money is so I can buy a home in the next couple of years. How should I invest this money? 
you shouldn't. That's a very short time frame. And if you needed that money sometime within the next couple of years, keep it in cash. Anything other than cash equivalents risks losing some of it. So that's an easy answer. But it was easy only because we first identified what the money was for. It turns out that for the most part, investing is far simpler than we think. Far simpler than what the knuckleheads on CNBC make it out to be. It's the context around investing, which is to say it's your life that is complicated. If you can figure out your life, then investing for it becomes a bit more like falling off a log. So she has a couple other questions to ask while in evaluating a specific investment. How liquid is this investment? And Matt, we talk about liquidity a lot, and this is used in the media as well. So I just want to to take some time and break this down of what liquidity means and what it is. And they do a really good job in this article. Yeah. So define that for listeners. What exactly is liquidity? Yeah. So it's, it's how quickly you can turn an investment into cash. And what they use in this example is how, how quickly can you turn an investment into grocery store money? And that's a good way to put it for good most way, people, way to put it. right? It's, yeah. it's relatable. Very relatable. So how easily can you get your money out of this investment? How easily can you turn this into grocery money? Bank accounts are the ultimate in liquidity. You can get your cash right now. Regular old broad market index funds, ETFs, stocks, mutual funds, these are also very liquid. You might need to wait a day or so to access the money, but you can turn it into groceries real quick. By contrast, real estate is not liquid. If you need to turn a house into grocery money, it's either going to be weeks or months while you try to sell it. Yes. And if you want to do it quicker than that, guess what you're going to do? You're going to take a major haircut. Correct. There are many investments out there where you cannot access your money for years. Private real estate investment trusts are one example. Collectible art, some of the more thinly traded cryptocurrencies, I would imagine, etc. Private equity, mm -hmm. hedge funds. So that's when we what we mean when we say liquidity. How quickly can you get your money out if you needed it in in cash? Yes, right into a currency. Yes, right. Um. The next important question is, what is the risk of loss? Under what circumstances will this investment lose value? How much should you expect to lose? For example, the U.S. market can definitely lose value, but as long as the United States continues to exist with a quasi-capitalist economy, the stock market isn't losing all of its value. That would be the old bottled water and guns, we've got bigger problems scenario. You know what? And there's a lot to that, by the way. There is. Because so many times um, in, in my career, Mark, I've been asked the question about, and I will just use the general broad term of doomsday related potential outcomes. Mm -hmm. And my usual reply is, you're not going to be thinking about your investment portfolio at that time. Right. It's not going to be a concern. Right. Exactly. You have bigger problems. Yeah. In the long history of the stock market, even when it's fallen 89% in 1929, it has not lost all of its value and, of course, eventually recovered. Cash, again, doesn't lose nominal value. That $1 will always be $1, but it loses spending power, of course, as inflation has its way. Silent killer. I've always said it. It is. So again, going back to what they first said, asking yourself, what is this money for? And you'd be amazed at how many times I'd be talking to people and they're like, hey, I want to be like more on the conservative side with this, this money. And then you get into it and ask them what the money's for. Hey, do you need this money within the next 10, 15 or 20 years? No. Well, why? 
you know, let's, let's get this money invested and grown for you then, right? The other aspect I see, Mark, is just because it's been invested a certain way for a longer period of time, the perception is we'll need to keep it that way. And this is either with a excess amounts of cash and savings account or an inheritance. Mm -hmm. Well, my parents had this money really conservative for the last 20 years of their life. I kind of feel like I need to keep that going. But wait a minute, you have a completely different subsect of of, of a financial situation, goals and objectives than, than your folks do. So that, mm -hmm. that my mind's not accurate. Right. Or just because you've had $100,000 in cash the last 10 years doesn't mean it should stay there. Mm -hmm. But there's some sort of thought process that just because it's been that way, well, I, I can't mess, I can't change that. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's not accurate. No, no, it's not. Um, so again, I, th I think you always need to be asking yourself, you know, before you make any investment decision, what is this money for? How liquid is it? Because if you get yourself in a situation where, yeah, you're in an investment that's promising to return X amount over the next five or 10 years, well, you need to make sure that you're in a good enough financial position that you don't need that money in the next five to 10 years. God forbid anything were to happen because you physically might not be able to take that out with the terms and conditions of that investment, right? Yeah, that's something you need to consider. Or it's like if you loan someone, I'm, I'm not suggesting anyone does this, but just for a simple example, say I came to you, Matt, and I was like, I need a $10,000 loan. And you were like, all right, Mark, that's fine. You're going to pay me back over five years and the interest rate is going to be 3%, right? Mm -hmm. So sign the terms of that loan. And let's say you get into a cash crunch and you need money. Hey, Mark, I we need already, my money back. We already signed an agreement. I'm going to sit there and be like, listen, we have a signed document here that says I can pay you back over a 10-year period at a 3% interest rate. I'm going to continue to pay that off. You just need to be aware that that's a possibility that you're not going to be able to get your money out. Exactly. So it's the same thing with, you know, especially with private investments. A lot of that stuff is very illiquid and your money's tied up for, you know, 5, 10, sometimes even 15 years. Whereas the nice part about the public markets is as long as you're investing in liquid stocks or liquid mutual funds or ETFs, again, like they say in this article, you can turn that money into grocery money pretty quickly. Love it. Okay. So just a couple things to be aware of for new people getting into the investment world. I think it's great. I'll turn it over to you. All right. I got three things today for the listeners and viewers, Mark. The first is a really good tweet. And it might appear to the, our audience that I'm rehashing your first uh, piece of tweet article and research. Yep. So this, is, this was not designed in this fashion. So this is a tweet uh, by a uh, trader I follow. His Twitter handle is M. Laban. Um, he is based out of Canada. Uh, I enjoy uh, the material this guy produces. So he had a, a, a tweet. It's titled Fear Strikes. Okay. And it showed a picture of a whiteboard. And I'm in, we do have this in our show notes. So just one more time, repeat to listeners how they could access this. Uh, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Facebook or LinkedIn, Jessup Wealth Management. Or if you're watching, this will be up on the screen as we speak. So it says fear strikes <laughs> and it has years. And the biggest issue the market was focused on that was going to cause the next major correction and the next great financial crisis. Let's walk through these. Um, as a reminder for listeners and viewers, I started in the industry in 1999. So you've I, been through this. I went through every single one of these. 
Here we go. You old man, you. I'm the old guy. I got the white <laughs> hair here, okay? 2000. Y2K is going to destroy everything. I literally remember, and I probably all people do, when, when the clock struck on New Year's Eve on 2000, what did everyone think was going to happen? World was Power's going to go off. <laughs> um, the money you had at the bank, when you went into your account the next day, it wasn't going to be there. I mean, all that type of stuff mm -hmm. was there. 2001 anthrax is going to kill us all remember people were sending anthrax in the mail mm -hmm. i remember mm -hmm. at the firm i was at they actually got like a ppe suit the goggles a respirator for people to open up the mail mm -hmm. it was crazy yeah 2002 yep. west nile virus it's going to kill us all mm -hmm. okay 2003 this is a biggie sars is going to kill us all i remember SARS, SARS. is pretty much i'm not i'm not downplaying it yeah. but it was contained mainly to asia but it was pretty serious man mm -hmm. i remember serious. that i remember that 2005 bird flu is going to kill us all okay mm -hmm. 2006 e coli is going to kill us all 2008 financial collapse it's not going to recover this is going to be the beginning of, of 1929, and it's going to last for a decade. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's all I heard at that time. Mm -hmm. i got to keep going. 09, swine flu is going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. 2012, this was actually a big thing then. The Mayan calendar predicts the world ending. Yep. that The world's going to end. 2013, North Korea is going to cause World War III. 2014, the Ebola virus is going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. 2015, ISIS is going to kill us all. 2016, remember old Zika? Zika virus was going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. 2020, the coronavirus, COVID's going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. And it says at the bottom, the truth is fear is going to kill you. Turn off the TV. Yeah, it's, it's, this is great. I loved it. You know, but there's so much truth to it though, because at the end of the day, Human nature, we are, especially in the U.S., we are just in a consumption economy. Mm -hmm. And consumption drives corporate earnings. Earnings drive stock prices. Mm -hmm. Are there going to be blips, just like you talked about at the beginning? Recessions, times when the, when the economy overheats and we have to correct? Yes. In fact, I will use the word guarantee it'll happen again. Mm -hmm. And many times in the future. Mm -hmm. But ultimately... Those things should not be things that derail your longer term plan. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, the best the best thing that's on this whiteboard is is turn off the TV. I love that. You know, even you know, not even talking about really, you know, anything financial related, but I, I think it's just it's not good for your health to be in a constant state of fear, right? No. And it forces you into making bad decisions, living in a constant state of fear. Um Rather, let's flip it on its head and accept that more things like this are going to happen in the future, and let's just live to deal with them in a more positive manner. Yes. Right? So yes. just accepting the fact that, you know, if, again, for my example, I think that we as a country need to take more responsibility on for being more financially secure for us and our families. If you've done your job and saved over, you know, your working career, then when the markets drop by 20%, you should be like, yeah, I got this. I've, like I said I've, I've prepared for this. I got this, right? That's when you know that you've made it. When this stuff happens, all these headlines come out and you're not phased by it. That's when you know you're on the right path, right? Exactly. Exactly, Mark. Yep. All right. So I have two more items uh, for listeners and viewers. It has to do with supply chain. And I am taking this, these items I'm about to discuss as, as positive. Okay, 
So the first thing is a global supply chain update. Now, this was a, uh, a note that JP Morgan released. And um, I, I will say that the bank is bullish on the market, especially in the first half of next year. Okay. So there is an inherent biasy because overall they're bullish. But this is what they said, and I just want to repeat it, okay? Mm -hmm. Global supply chain pressures are easing. JP Morgan analyst led by chief global market strategist Kovanich wrote in commentary, quote, if this persists, the S&P 500 should continue to deliver strong revenue growth and record margins. U.S. companies deliver much stronger than expected Q3 results, and some key names gave an encouraging outlook on supply chains. Our view has been that supply and labor shortages would be temporary and normalized with the decline in COVID-19. Textual analysis of management discussions confirms that trends are stabilizing with the worst likely behind us. I'll pause there for a second. I, I, I do think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I still, my personal opinion, I think peak pain on inflation and supply issues is early spring. Okay. My two cents. Okay. And then they go on to say how bullish they are between now and the end of the first half of 22, which I'm not going to say. But they are bullish. But I like their, their inputs, though, on the supply chain. So then I, I see that snippet of research for, for listeners. And then not too far afterwards, I see a tweet from Walter Bloomberg. He reports a lot of news on November 29th. This is what he said. Walmart CEO says they have seen a 26% increase in containers going through U.S. ports just in the last four weeks. And so I'm starting to get these little data points that goods are starting to move a little bit quicker. OK. Mm -hmm. And again, what I've said is the biggest issue with inflation and supply chains is employment. We didn't get a great number for November. We had a good number for October. We have record job openings right now. The jolts number is like 11 million open jobs. We got to start digging into that. We got to start getting people back to work. We get to start um, uh, immigration programs again. We, we need to get people working here in the U.S. It's going to make those factors better. But I am starting to get encouraged that the peak problems of the supply chain, they're thinking it's peaked. I think it could peak in, in early spring, but we're on the avenue. And in my opinion, when we look back one year from now, whether JP Morgan nailed it or my synopsis of early spring in the stock markets world and time horizons, we're in this venue where I think a year from now, supply chain issues are going to be a lot better. Hence, I think that's going to help the consumption of the consumer. It could definitely help corporate earnings. And if I am an investor, those are the things I'm watching. Yeah. And I don't, you know, just my personal opinion is I don't think the S&P 500 would be what what is it? It's like 0.25% away from an all time high right now. Yes, I don't think we would be there if it wasn't forward looking and saying that these issues were going to get resolved sometime within the near future. Great point, Mark. It might not be next month. It might not be in February, but it's saying I think it's telling us, hey, guys, we're going to figure this out, you know, and everyone and that's this is the beautiful thing about the market. It's like you don't you know, you don't have to really concern yourself with all of these headlines, because would we really be almost at an all time high right now? if doom and gloom was going to hit within the next year. Mark, great point. What you're saying there is let the price movement in the market yes. give you the, the, the tea leaves. Mm -hmm. 
right? Exactly. You've yeah. said that for, for a very long time. Right. It's like, you know, price doesn't lie to price does not lie to a certain extent. Do people need to know what's going on? Yes. Do they need to know the reason behind every single market move? And does anyone really know? No, you don't need to. Why? Why concern yourself with that? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we know the market's going to go up. We know the market's going to go down. We know the market's going to go up more than it goes down over a long period of time. Yep. Let it go. I love it. Let it be. I love it. <laughs> um, so this is a rarity this week. Uh, this has only happened, I'd say, a handful of times. I'm doing the financial planning topic of the week. I love when this happens. So I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the. Uh, Uh, This week off, but I obviously want your feedback. Okay. So my piece for listeners this week is this article is from CNBC. It's from Michelle Fox on November 30th titled, A Majority of Americans Don't Understand This Retailer Financing Strategy and It Could Cost Them Big Bucks. Okay. Saw that. I had to click. Okay. So I'm going to read. Um, And it says, quote, before you grab that great deal through a store's special financing offer, let's say Best Buy or Costco or name the retailer, Macy's, Macy's, name the retailer, right? Make sure you know what you're signing up for. About half of retailers offer credit cards with deferred interest, yet 56% of Americans don't know how the financing strategy actually works, Mark. This is according to a study done done by personal finance website, Wallet Hub. It pulled more than 300 U.S. adults just in October. That's the reason why I'm including it in the topic. I saw that stat and I was like, we need to educate people on this. Okay. So the lack of knowledge can mean a big bill for you down the line. While you pay no interest or a reduced rate for a period of time, you may get a high regular APR annual percentage rate of of interest retroactively applied to your original purchase if you pay one month's bill late or even owe as little as a dollar when the promotional period ends. So let me give an example of this. For instance, Mark, if you charged $800 on a normal credit card that had a 0% APR promotion for six months, and Mark, let's say it takes you seven months to pay it off, you'd owe $2 of interest, assuming a 20% APR, according to WalletHub analysis. However, Mark, with deferred interest cards, you could wind up paying about 27 and a half times that amount, or $55 in interest, in this same scenario the website found. It only negates any savings that there was from the promotion, and you wind up paying much more for the item than you probably would have, said Jill Gonzalez, senior analyst of WalletHub. Among those who do understand deferred interest, 77% think it's unfair and 69% think it's actually illegal. (laughs) So Americans have an average of 2.3 retail cards. When we say retail, that's specific to one retailer. So not just like a A Visa Visa or MasterCard or or American Express or Discover. It's your American Airlines credit card or Macy's credit card. But you can only use at that retailer. It says the average balance of those cards, according to Experian, is about $1,900. And the average uh, interest rate on those is about 28%. Okay. It's it's pretty high. Okay. So this time of the year, it could be really, really tempting to, to, to sign up for these cards. Okay. 
So remember, if you take the deferred interest offer, make sure you listen carefully, know the terms of the APR, and you pay off the purchase before the end of the introductory period. So if it's six months, you have to have it paid off by the end of six months. And if you do six months in a day, you are paying retroactive interest for the previous time you've had the whole purchase. That's the thing people don't understand. And it's not that the interest starts at six months in a day. It's retroactive from the beginning of the purchase. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's one of those things I think that, you know, if it sounds too bi- too good to be true, it usually is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to do your work on these deferred interest rate credit cards. And, you know, just be careful with this stuff, because I've seen people get into a lot of trouble with it. And next thing you know, this debt is accruing at 28 percent and you're in a pretty big hole. Yeah. And I just want to throw it out there because, again, when I saw that stat that, you know, 56% of the people don't understand how it works, again, you know, that intro of 0%, if you don't have it paid off by the end of the introductory period, the interest is retroactive in these retail cards. Yeah. And these, and, you know, these credit card, I mean, the, like these retailers associated with these credit cards, they're not stupid, right? So oh, yeah. if they, it's, it's like free hundred dollars or hundred and fifty dollars in store credit when you sign up for this credit card they know what the numbers are they know they what the know odds are they're gonna make it up on the back end. not gonna pay it off right and they're, so they're gonna make it up on the back end right oh, yeah so you know even though it it sounds really good most of the time it's in the benefit of the the retailer or whoever is issuing these cards. they know enough people are not going to be organized to have it pay it off finance life happens finance changes and they're going to make their money one way or the other. Right. So that was just my word of caution for listeners just to be careful this time of year with that. Yep. Yep. Good point. Back to you, Mark. Um, I think that's really it, Matt. Anything else before we leave it off? Uh, no. Listeners? Nope. Nope. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode number 127 of the Independent Advisors Podcast. We will be back with you next week for 128. And if I'm not mistaken, Jenna, we have a guest next week. Uh, to talk about the housing market. So um, the way I want to do this and just give people a little preview is we're going to have someone on um, that's going to talk about the loan side of getting a I house. I think this will be really good. And then the other portion of it, and we might break up break this up into two depending on the length, but then the other portion is unexpected expenses that you might see when you buy a house that you're not taking into account when you're doing all the calculations on what my what is my mortgage going to cost what is kind of like taxes? renting versus buying per se right yeah but just all the other costs associated with a house right how many people have we talked to that are like hey i want to buy this new house and you look and it's like five thousand six thousand square foot house wait till you pay the landscaping bill on that bad boy right like the upkeeping and what comes with buying an older home since i experienced buying an older home recently in the past couple of months so we're going to talk about the loan aspect of getting a house and then some unexpected expenses that you could uh, foresee and you might not necessarily thinking about when you're making that purchase. It's going to be a fun one. So yeah, so we'll see you all next week for a little bit of a housing discussion. All right, listeners, we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealth.com. 
www.wealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.